16, Koan moves. Face the world and go crosswise. Linji. What else is possible? This simple word-shaking question is one of the gifts of Taoism to the Koan tradition, profoundly affecting the way we come, come to, our, to live our lives. If the universe is made of transformations, so are we. As we grow comfortable with that, our heart minds grow increasingly loose-limbed and curious and the field of the possible expands. This is still part of the paragraph. Pulling the camera back. Okay. Oh, maybe it isn't. <clears throat> oh. We just got a Trouty. Hello. Hello. Hey, Trouty. I just got an offer. <laughs> oh, Sorry, is it an okay offer? It looks the best ever. Oh, that's great, Trouty. Congratulations. Well, I have to think about it still. No, don't. No, do it. <laughs> do it. <laughs> a famous economist said you don't make a better decision after 10 minutes of deliberation. It's true. He, studied, it. he studied this very uh, carefully. About 12 minutes. No, that's wrong. 10 minutes. Just checking. <laughs> he got a Nobel Prize. So anyway. Trouty, is it the best offer because it's the only offer? No, no, there were lots of offers. But ah, great. So it really is a good offer then. Well, um, I, I didn't want investors. Yeah. This false uh, bank accounts and downloading from the internet uh, what 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 is that called you know when people write in uh liked and disliked or something like that <clears throat> anyway <clears throat> i don't want to de detract uh from from the reading okay thank you pulling the camera back when thoughts and feelings seem like a problem you can narrow your focus to struggle with them or widen the view to take in a more realistic sense of how large the field is in which those thoughts and feelings arise. When you're having a difficult conversation or hearing a devastating news story, notice whether, almost without being aware of it, you move from that direct experience into a second order of experience in which your reaction to the conversation or the news overtakes everything else, becoming the most compelling thing that's happening. In the tradition that is evocatively known as putting a head on top of your head. Um, what if you were to notice and accept the reaction, but decline to let it substitute itself for the experience from which it arose. Okay, what if you were to notice and accept the reaction, but decline to let the reaction substitute itself mm. for the experience 
from which it arose. Okay. What if your awareness takes in the other person or the news, your reaction, the sounds outside the window, the quality of light, the earth rolling around the sun, that's seeing the larger field of the experience. And it shows you the realistic proportion your thoughts and feelings have in that field. Nothing indulged, nothing suppressed, nothing made especially important or especially bad. Everything holding a bit closer to the way things are. What do you make of this? The dog. It's been something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Tell us what you think, Kim. Please. Well, what we don't know is the experience, but what we do know is our reaction to the experience. And we keep thinking that we know the experience where we really don't. We just know how we're reacting to it. So if we don't allow that, our feeling about the experience, if we don't acknowledge that, we keep going to the experience, which is like an unknown thing. We, 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 it's impossible to, to know anything but our feeling, our reaction to the experience. See, I'm, I'm reacting. I'm, so I, <laughs> I must be very reactive tonight. Yes. Because. Maybe you need to go on vacation again. Again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. I, I I find this challenging and um, um, not close to truth, and here's why. Wait, 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 wait. Melen's here. Mm. Okay. I see. I see the part that says nothing made especially important or especially bad. And I looked at that and said, okay, no, don't make something especially important or especially bad. But there are things that are especially important or especially bad, like a bomb falling in the middle of your house when you're in Ukraine. There are things that are especially important or especially bad, whether or not you make them that. So I struggle with that kind of language that minimizes the reality of harms. I really do. So that's where I am. This is a this is a big question, kind of like about small mind and big mind, and it, yeah, you know, it, it's a continual. I think it's like I don't know the way uh, it's still rolling around in in my head, but it's like, yeah, we're this small self. There's a subjective reality. There's an objective reality and a subjective reality, and we are very much tied to the subjective reality. Like we can only take in what we can process. And so we have a, a reaction and it's like holding that reaction, knowing it's a reaction and knowing that there's all these other things happening in the midst of our reaction you know um so that's like the experience um you know so like when i was reading 
my dog was losing it a bit and I was noticing my dog. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. And so my attention was sort of shifted and I had a, I had a feeling come up with the dog being so distracting to me. It was my world and my dog's distracting me and I'm uh, reading this thing. And so all of this, including my feelings is in the experience and it's an experience like other experiences. So I guess it's like holding, to me, it's like holding this thing lightly. I think that nothing made especially important or especially bad is, is more talking about the reaction. Not that like there's, there's definitely things that are subjectively horrible can happen to people but uh, nothing made especially important is like I often get lost in my own reaction and thinking that's all that happened so but are there things that are objectively horrible objectively horrible mm -hmm. objectively horrible um Object, what does objective mean? Well, that's part of the question, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask it a different way, but not that we need to answer it tonight. I mean, this is going to go on a long time, but is despair and anger necessary? Necessary? Necessary in terms, terms of, you know, certain things happen and then you, there is appropriate response yeah do you have to add to that despair and anger i think sometimes despair and anger is the appropriate response i mean it's the response it's the reaction like these are things that we well the response or the feeling the the initial feeling right it's the feeling probably yeah i mean anger could be directed maybe and she'll say some more things that will um <laughs> that will help us here okay just just a quick yes um just a quick thing it doesn't seem to me that she's uh uh encouraging us to uh to put aside what arises for us but instead to to to, to attend to notice it and to accept that and to see also um, what else is, is present around that. So I don't think, um, you know, if, if I, uh, my mantra is, you know, I will not think bad thoughts, I will not think bad thoughts, I will not think, that doesn't make uh, whatever this, I, I just picked that, I don't know what a bad thought is, but that's not gonna make a thing not arise. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if we see what arises, whether, whether it's a, a, an inclination towards compassion or uh, it's fear or anger, if we just see that, we don't have to sort of, uh, get swallowed by it. So I, I just think it's not about not having feelings or reactions occur. 
it's it's about noticing that and accepting it. But as she says right at the first sentence, I think is very powerful. Not allowing that to be the thing, the only thing that's happening. So that's all. Yeah, the other extreme is we would be so caught in this thing that was happening that we would be paralyzed. Right, but she's that she's not saying to to, to fall headlong into either. It's like uh, this reminds me of uh, when I was. This was, I guess, maybe three years ago. I remember Flint. Uh, we were at a retreat, and his dad was like very sick, or you know, I think he was near death, or you know, he wasn't doing well, and. Flynn said that he's like, I know the I know the there's a I know the bigger picture, the larger self or whatever. Like I, I know that this is like we're all interconnected and this, you know, this continuation. Like I know all these things, but I'm still feeling sad. Like it's he's still my dad, I'm still his son, and I feel this, you know, deep sadness. And it's like it's kind of like you're holding both, like you're holding it all, right? You're just like, oh, and you're still, you can't negate, I guess like we're still our subjective, we're still our small self, like all of that is real and we're not trying to run away from it. The word, Nelda, the word made, nothing made is real curious to me as opposed to nothing is. Yes, and I and I mentioned that. So that's constructed. Yes, and I and I mentioned that if, if you recall, I said looking at the sentence that says nothing made especially important or bad, if we ignore the made part, or I I want to address what is my experience in the world, and that there are things that are especially bad and especially important moments times, people, actions. So, no, I understand that she's saying, do not create a mountain out of a molehill. But I also think sometimes we confuse ourselves. And, and this is coming up because I had a long conversation yesterday over lunch with a friend of mine who is not Buddhist. And she said, I cannot attach to your practice because it's almost like I hear you. I hear you people. That's what she called us. You people say, <laughs> oh, just calm down. Just, you know, don't make anything out of anything. Just be this kind of way. Try to get there. And I'm like, no, there's many ways. There's many ways you can be. That's not what we're saying. And so I'm just pointing out that in reality, as I see reality from my subjective place, there are things that are especially bad. Just as there are things in this creation that are especially amazing. And to deny either, I think it's to deny our reality and our experience. So the, the other thing I was talking to Peg about is w when does spiritual materialism like become a trick? Like, you know, mm -hmm. reframing is okay to a certain point. There's many ways of viewing things, but then mm -hmm. there's there's a point where you can go too far. And then I guess I guess if you're really out of your mind, Jess, right, you would really go too far and you would construct this world that had nothing to do with reality. Yeah. 
That would be the extreme of spiritual materialism. I think, like, to nail this point, it's like, um, there's real things that happen, that can happen to any of us that will produce, like, trauma in the body, you know? It's like, your body will have a trauma response, and then the way you see the world is, like, I mean, it's, um, that's something that, and then if you were to, like, yeah, like if you were to read this sort of stuff, expecting that this will change your the trauma you experienced, you know, then that doesn't really fit. Like you would need some trauma-informed, like, treatment, you know? Like, as there are things that are especially bad that can change you forever, you know, or change. Um, anyways, yeah, I think, uh, and I don't, I really, yeah, I, I think it makes, I mean, that's my quandary, I guess, because like, you know, I think when I started my practice, I was hoping that this would be a solution to most of my problems. And then the more I practice, I think this is, a, I don't know what this is, but it's something. And, um, you know, I think there's like a more subtle way, but I don't know. Okay. Who's reading now? Jess, did you read? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Then I guess it's me. Interruption. Once in a koan salon, someone spoke about being angry about it with a coworker and the uprush of desire she felt in a moment of confrontation to say the unthinkable, just to find out what would happen. Someone else said that they'd learned to step back and investigate the anger and the desire in a moment like that, obviously a wholesome and responsible thing to do. (coughs) Over here in left field, the koan move is to ask, who wants to say the unthinkable? So we'll read it more on about this. I think it's Milan. I will just listen because it's very noisy here. Thank you. Okay. So then we have Nandia. Okay. There's something so free about that question as though you interrupt the intensity of the desire to speak with something so startling, it shifts the whole frame but right in close, without the careful distance of investigating. Not using a self to manage a self, but making a move as vivid and improbable as spring out of winter. The play of it, the subversiveness, the refusal to take the self and its reactions on their own weighty terms, the willingness to step out of the story made up of made of anger and desire into storylessness, who-lessness. In a simple and instant way, it becomes possible to let go of the self as ordinarily constituted because you've re- you're, I'm sorry, because you've been reminded of something so much larger and that ordinary self just isn't as compelling. The koan move is to remind you of the true circumstances, the vast, 
interpermeated, interperm, wait, interpermeated circumstances in which any conversation occurs and to suggest you act in a way that is natural when you take those circumstances into account. And I add to that in my contrarian <laughs> mode, that has also to do with what we're told in our practice. That's what I love about Buddha. We get to question everything that's said about our practice too. So. And you know that that ex expression taking the backward step isn't that the you know asking the question who wants to say the unthinkable like it's this or that should I sell the house or not but then maybe there's a backward step I don't know what it is but you know something else some other option so, you know I've told the story I think a lot of you have heard it about the, the monk who um, buys peach from both, the same peaches from both vendors at different prices. And he kind of took the backward step and he saw both of these guys need to make a living. It's that kind of thing. So th there is another, another um, place you can be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Nelda, it's your turn. Oh, a sideways move. I just read. Oh, Trouty. yay. Sideways move. A man once told his story during a retreat. He was rock climbing on a cliff face when he missed a foothold and started to fall instinctively and against all instinct. He pushed away from the cliff and out into empty space. When he landed alive, he realized that his body remembered that there were jagged rocks just below the cliff, but sand out, out beyond them. By pushing off to reach the sand, he saved his life. Kuhn described having book learning without direct experience as someone trying to assuage their thirst by holding a bowl of water and thinking that the point was not to spill any, spill any of it. <clears throat> someone who's had an experience of what the book describes would know that the counterintuitive answer to their thirst is to pour the bowl into the near, nearest body of water for the benefit of every creature, as Akuin says who leaps, runs, flies, or crawls, including themselves. The koans are sideways moves, unmesmerizing us from the intractable obstacle or worrisome problem so that we can see a new path. Stepping back into the moment before, looking for the third alternative, abiding nowhere and letting the heart-mind come forth. Responding with your whole self, all the sideways moves becoming the way. Anything more we want to say about? Um, I kind of like that idea of it being a sideway move instead of a backward step. Mm. You know, backwards a little negative in connotation. But sideways is finding another way of looking at it. 
Yeah. I've been like the koans I guess I've been using during the week or thinking about is the those ones you walk with that I don't know. And what is this? What is this? What is this? And it's um I guess if you ask the question, what is this? It allows you to, it allows you the opportunity to look at things or to go sideways, potentially, may not. But um, those are really, I find them very, I don't know if that's their purpose, but I find them very calming, you know, like, very, it's very calming for me. Thank you. Um, am I reading next? I think so. Okay. 17, gathering. Once there were 16 bodhisattvas who entered the bath together they suddenly realized the cause of water and said, the subtle touch of water releases the radiance. We have been born into the family of awakening. Wow. Okay. Uh, the idea of koan study, strengthening and awakening, not just individuals, but entire communities, goes back to the origins of the koans. The Chinese word gongan, after all, means public case. As we worked to make the koans more accessible, it was natural to explore them together. The beautiful experiment was to treat koans, not just as teaching stories, but to bring their full transformative potential into a group. <coughs> I'm writing in the past tense because I'm describing my own teaching experiences. Many of these customs and practices continue throughout the open source. And new ones have been developed since then. We explored koans together in seminars, during retreats, and in koan salons throughout the year. The koans were handed out ahead of time, so participants had a chance to bring them into their meditation and walk around with them a bit before we gathered for conversation. The koan was read. The teacher or someone else might give a brief talk. We'd meditate, and then our conversation began. I can remember so many evenings in the dim light of the meditation hall when it seemed that we were tossing the koan one to another, tossing and catching and tossing it on, the room beginning to glow with the luminous filaments connecting us. A koan asks, what does Guan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, do with all those hands and eyes? This and this and this we demonstrate. 
might be Nelda. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Indi it's individual and group work deepen each other. One of the most moving examples was during retreats that accumulate in the ceremony of taking refuge in the Bodhisattva way. The retreat participants who were taking part in the ceremony spent part of their time sinking into their understanding of the Bodhisattva vows, which they'd read at the ceremony. This is profound and solitary work. There's a rich connection between vows and koans. So the entire book, I'm sorry, the entire group would take up koans that relate to the Bodhisattva way. These koans permeated the retreat, helping to create a strong container for those taking refuge. They in turn requited, is that correct? Requited. Requited this support with their vows. What does requited mean? Um, so unrequited love is... Ah, okay, got it, got it. <laughs> I understand requited now. They in turn requited this support with their vows, which never failed to inspire the other retreatants. And what is a, what do you see as the connection between vows and koans? Anyone? Well, I can shoot from my hip. Okay. <clears throat> I think the cons would be conducive to any action that will support um, the person in their in their path, in their practice. But, you know, that's a generalization. I have to- So we're, we're not doing this just for um, kicks, the koans. We're doing it to, to, uh, to end suffering in a way. We, we are doing it that we don't, that we are not necessarily reactive as we normally are. We're not reactive as say it again? As we normally might be. Oh no, we're looking at other ways of looking at things. Exactly. And the koan or the koans are great facilitators. But there's probably many other ways. To so I guess they enable us to do the vows. They're, they're, well, they... it's not it's not only the cons to enable. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Okay, who's next? Nelda. I just read Audi. No. Did I was lost, right? Okay, then Cody. Or were we? Were we at again? In awakened life. Okay, in awakened life's <clears throat> artist retreats in Santa Fe. The morning was spent in meditation and koan conversation. 
We explored the similarities and the differences among meditation, koan practice, and making art. <coughs> the, af the afternoons were work for working, and then we came together again to close the day with a koan. <coughs> at, the end of the at the end of the retreat, people presented their work, which often included spontaneous collaborations among the particip participants. We began, we began work meetings from retreat setup to board gatherings with the koan meditation. We'd be reminded of the larger field in which our conversation about responsibilities and tasks was taking place and of what we shared as a group. Sometimes disagreements arose, but they're different somehow when they arise in the koan field. People tend to ask more questions rather than jumping to fixes to be more comfortable with silence and waiting, and to be curious about differences, as well as similarities. The koans orient us toward inquiry and listening when trouble arises, and that helps. This is an answer to Kim's question, the second half of this paragraph. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go back uh, the page before. And, you know, I think this is uh, not important, I guess, but uh, Nelda read the top paragraph because she asked about requited when she said it. And uh, then Cody read the second one, and then Emily read the third one. Trouty answered a question after the first one. So that's how we that's where we are so uh, okay next and i feel we skipped trouty in the reading yeah we did i think it's because she answered a question and so then we kind of moved trouty would you like to read the next one Sure. Which one is the next one then? The top. We also got together informally in conversations. Occasioned by something that had come up in someone's life. Bringing in a con gave shape and focus to the conversation. Interrupted habitual ways of seeing things and offered the solace of a big picture. When people meet for tea and koans, we are enlarging our experience of both what koans are for and how we might be friends to each other. Oh, I love this last sentence. <laughs> I'm just really appreciating and um, somewhat um, amused by the fact that uh, we can't even keep the reading order straight but uh, we're trying to tackle how to understand a koan. So, but we're so, um, we're so interested and appreciative of the text and listening and talking to one another that we forget the reading order, which is not too complex an equation. I just, I'm just really bowing to that. Thank you.
one of the happiest innovations of my time with Awakening Life was the Koan Salon. <clears throat> we met once a week in a private home which signaled a slightly different atmosphere from the meditation hall. The participants were a mix of Koan students and came by word of mouth. And the salon seemed particularly, particularly attractive to writers and visual artists. It turned out that most, almost everyone, however they got there, was in living, enlivened by the give and take between experience and fresh perspective. Uh, let's see, we kind of got out of order. Just did you want to go next or? Sure. Uh, for the first few years, I picked the koans based on intuition and the weather. <laughs> and then we spent four years working our way through perhaps the most challenging collection, the Blue Cliff Record. The koan salon has continued to meet since I retired from teaching, which is a testament to its place in people's lives. It's hard to convey what a salon is like since it happens so entirely in the moment. What lingers in my mind is the quality of attention, the goodwill, the honesty, the ways people, people's awakening visibly unfolded over time and how I never left a salon without learning something I had not seen on my own. Um, so, but Emily, did you read? We kind of, we kind of were jumping around. So I was, I, I know. So you want to read now? <laughs> no, you can go ahead, Kim. Thank you. Okay. We were happy to discover that the koans helped create a strong peer culture, a kind of horizontal axis to meet the vertical axis of ancestors, tradition, and transmission. <coughs> we realized while, after a while, that we were creating a culture rather than building an institution. After the koan, the koan's salon had been meeting a while, People commented that it was as though we were learning a foreign language together for a country that was slowly revealing itself to us as we learned to speak its native tongue. So this is very different than the Rinzai practice of koan study, where it's between the individual and the teacher. This is creating community with koans, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, more like what we're doing. Yeah, seems like it. Okay, now the ends. Is it me? Yes. Koan, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that other. Woozy said, Shakyamuni and Maitreya are servants of another. Tell me. Who is that other? In, in Buddhist mythology, there have been many Buddhas, one for each of the world's eras. 
the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, is the one for this age. Maitreya, the Buddha of the next age, is on deck in one of the heavens. These Buddhas have always been solitary, heroic figures. But perhaps this is not the time anymore for solitary, heroic figures. Perhaps we can take over the project of making the Buddha body ourselves, ourselves in service to that other. The name Maitreya is kin to words for friendship and loving kindness. When we meet together, it becomes possible to imagine that Maitreya is not one individual, but many. In our time, perhaps, a worldwide spread of weary, brave souls. Each of our generous acts revealing Maitreya being born, each crotchety, persevering person part of their vast body, all the moments of community and collaboration sparking across synapses, joining cells into membranes, knitting the cartilage of that body together. Hmm. 18, taxonomies of the radiant in the center of the cosmos inside heaven and earth. There is one treasure hidden in your body. It picks up the lantern and walks into the meditation hall. You men. Oof. That made, me, that made me cry. Huh? I think that's beautiful. Yes. The deep story of the koans is awakening. Awakening is a close translation of the Sanskrit word bodhi, the root of Buddha. And in its Chinese equivalent, wu. All, sorry, of all the synonyms for awakening, the one that comes closest to the koan experience is the Chinese term intimate. Ching Chie. Intimacy evokes warmth and interest, seeing things as they actually are and caring about them. It happens in relationship. The Chinese term has association, associations not only with kinship and affection, but also wonderfully with doing something in person. Experiencing it, for yourself. We become intimate with the things of the world and we become intimate with the vastness. This intimacy grows over time and it deepens suddenly too. When all at once the thicket of brambles around us falls away and nothing is, in, is between our skin and the skin of everything else. Awakening is the path we're walking from first breath to last. And probably before and after that too. <clears throat> it has passages and facets, sudden leaps forward, stumbles, and long stretches of wandering. It is never done. 
while what we awaken to is the same for all of us, how we awaken and express that awakening in our lives is endless, endlessly idiosyncratic, which gives the word world its texture. For each of us, awakening is a long takes to shape human. Along the way come openings, sudden upwellings of realization and clarity. They take different forms and have varying intensities, ranging from a glimmer of insight to an enlightenment experience. It's possible to have a number of openings in a lifetime, each one illuminating a particular part of the vast territory of awakening. Hakuin, a great chronicler of meditation experiences, said that he had countless large and small ones. Any koan can be the occasion of an opening, and koans open a kind of feedback loop. When you develop language to express and explore the experience, the experience deepens. Then koans accompany you through the long and essential process of integrating revelation and daily life. This integration is a ground note theme of the essays in this section. What I hope becomes clear is that the integration isn't simply a matter of illumination flooding our lives, which we then learn to hold. But I hope it becomes clear that the integration isn't simply a matter of illumination flooding our lives, which we then learn to hold. There's an alchemical process between illumination and life and opening experiences that are by their nature. Uh, what does that word mean? See. French. Oh, what does that mean? Is I don't know. By their origin, aren't static. By their, aren't, I don't know. Yeah, their genesis maybe unique. There we go. Unique. What does it say? Uh huh. Oh. Of its own kind. Yeah. It. It is. It is as if. It created itself. Okay. It generated itself. Generated itself. It, it, it's a Sorry. it's a phrase. So the phrase changes according to the context. So there wasn't a full sentence. So. Okay, um, aren't static, they become part of something new, a particular person situated in a particular world. We talk colloquially about someone's enlightenment, assuming that each person's enlightenment has its own qualities and expressions. This one sees things quickly, 
That one has an uncanny capacity for empathy. Each person's enlightenment becomes more vivid over time as it's lived in a particular life. Enlightenment, oh, that's right, me. Enlightenment has been closely identified with koan practice, although it is only one part of the arc of awakening. Terms that are differentiated in their original languages have all been rendered as enlightenment in English, and the term is used in different traditions to mean different things. Then add the cloud of our projections and yearnings, and it meaning has been pretty thoroughly obscured. I use enlightenment to refer to a specific thing, an opening that is profound, transformative experience of the vastness and insubstantiality, insubstantiality of the self. This changes us through an abiding sense of awe and a kind of clarity called prajna in Sanskrit. Koan study is meant to open us to such experiences, but this isn't the only transformative process at work. Coupled with enlightenment is endarkenment. At the center of the luminous temple, we find, is a well so deep with waters so dark that there's no penetrating it, no sense of where or whether it ends. This is what Taoists call the dark mysterious and what Shito said is the dark from which stream oh this is what Taoists call the dark mysterious and what shito said is the dark from which stream the branches of light that make up the universe endarkenment begins as a humbling realization of this unknowable mystery at the heart of things it unfolds as a growing ease with the unknowing an appreciation of the rich, invisible medium in which everything lives. Uh, Malen would like to ask something, say something. Yes, um, uh, I have a couple of questions uh, with this paragraph. So I was uh, wondering myself is if enlightenment for what I understand is a process of the heart, mind and the body, right? And I was wondering if koan, koan practice is a process also of the heart, mind, and the body. What do you think? I vote yes. How many for yes? Two, two up here. <laughs> And what's the other question? Yeah, and I think it's really important about the body. That the, you approach things initially from the mind, or one does, I do, you know, but then if it doesn't get you. In the calm practice, I cannot find the relationship with the body right now. Can you explain more? Can anyone? 
It's interesting. Maybe it's an individual thing, Milan. I mean, I feel koans in my body before I formulate a thought on them. Just like when we read that little introductory paragraph, and it, 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 it was instant. There was no thought. There was no, it was just there. So maybe it's just a matter of how our body functions. You know, some people are right-handed, some left-handed. Some of us are visual, some auditory, some of us kinesthetic, and so, or or more of that. So I don't have an answer. I'm just actually proposing a possibility. So Peg has said many times, you know, she used to be there when we did koan practice on Wednesday night, and she'd say many times that it's about the relationship. There's always a relationship there. And I think it's easier to take in relationships as body stuff than than figuring something out. And then also some of the koans, like where the, the, the teacher says, if you don't have a good a word of Zen or something, a word to say, I'm going to cut this cat in half. You know, that certainly touches your body, doesn't it? So, um, so part of it would depend on the koan, but the sideways step to you're physically moving to change your relationship to it. Thank you. Was that the second question? Yes. Oh, okay. Can I think I? like when you, I think like when we like, well, I don't know, for me, like when I read the koan, it's all thought and concept. Then if I'm like, um, like, really like if I'm sitting with it and I think about it in different times of the day and you know rolling it around then I start to notice the um the the physiological like the physical relationship with the koan like I notice how my body feels. Jess, I would love to know what you are on the Myers-Briggs scale. <laughs> uh, yeah, why, why? <laughs> what, what do you think? I have no idea, but it's def you definitely start with an I. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, that was an interesting question. Sorry, I go back to, to Kim. But uh, I don't know, it occurred to me that uh, many of the other uh, Buddhist traditions, they don't employ koans in their practice. They don't? No. Mm. That's specific, as far as I know, that's specific for some of the Chinese Buddhism, not all of it. Um, and then uh, Japanese, Japanese to go. And we know Korean too. Korean, yes, thank you. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and it, I was wondering if 
It has to do with the process of meditating the koans and dream, dream them on in order to get them in the in the way it is described in this last chapter like you have to actually meditate them or dream them or this kind of physiological process before really get them and all that it's a question you're kind of asking could you study koans without meditation yes <laughs> thank you Kim, haven't you talked about how a koan might hit you a different way on different times in your life? Sure, yeah. It's kind of like, um, it feels almost like um, a koan has the possibility of growing and changing and um, being seen in a different way for based on what you need in that moment, potentially. So whether that's like through dreaming or um, making art or talking about it or however you arrive. Thank you for all of your answers. I think you could find it. Uh, yeah, I don't believe that meditation would be the only, only kind of um, way you can um, explore a koan. You know, I think my wife does it gardening. So that's kind of her meditation. You know, what's some people? There's so many ways of of um, being quiet or being still or being um letting go of things hmm. so uh the last two sentences that we read in document begins and it unfolds could somebody read that again and tell me what this means Where where is that? Right there, right where you got. Oh yes, yes. Have you heard this term in document? Yeah. Flint's talked about it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also in that book, the Vimalakirti book. It probably depends who translates. <laughs> no, no definition. Well, like where I get okay. So, in Dargan begins as a humbling realization of this unknowable mystery at the heart of things. It unfolds as a growing ease with the unknowing, an appreciation of the rich, invisible medium in which everything lives. That sounds important. Sounds like an important concept. Uh, growing ease with the 
you know, on this invisible thing that I, I don't think I have an ease with. I, so I need, I'm like, I, there's a part of me that's like, I need to know what this is. Like, what is that? What is that? What is that pointing to? Um, do you know how you breathe? Yeah, there's a, that's, that's good. Huh. So I what guess do you, it, what do you mean, Emily? Well, like, there's a couple of things that we live with, with ease, with not really knowing, right? Right. Um, so how do we apply that ability to the unknowable mystery of life, I guess? Like, because we're, we're perfectly content to not know how exactly we breathe or... Uh, have a consciousness so why are we not content with not knowing the meaning of life or whether there's a god or stuff like that in this podcast i listened to it talked about how the main thing our brain does is regulate the body and the chemistry and all this all this stuff goes on you know the the stuff that we're conscious of is such a little bit of what our our brain is doing. It's like the, you know this. We might be like a little five minute break compared with what the brain's doing twenty four seven. Go on. Someone started to say something. Well, just reflecting on that, um, we don't think about you know, how we breathe, we're, we're content to just like let it do its thing, but just to sort of bring in another perspective here, um, we, we don't think about how we breathe until we have trouble with that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've had periods in my life where it's quite difficult to breathe and it makes one very, very conscious of it. And sort of how do I work with this and what do I do with this and <laughs> is the next one actually going to come and I think you could say that about consciousness as well that when I mean maybe this is a little bit of a leap but for for many of us um when <laughs> our consciousness uh has, has reached a certain level of suffering we start inquiring about um if there might be a release from that suffering and what might be the path to that release from suffering so um just just a thought yeah it's another way to look at the it's another facet of the of the question yeah Thank you, Nadia. Well put. And I find that most people who seek a spiritual practice, regardless of what it is, are looking for a relief of suffering in a medium that's comfortable to them, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity. So thank you for it's it's the same as not being able to breathe well, but on a spiritual level.
Well, there's uh, another paragraph about endarkament for Jess. Oh, good. Who's reading now? I think it's my turn. I'm sorry. Okay. My turn. It was just Jess's, oh, God. <laughs> oh, I said, oh, good. I said, oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Endarkament also puts us right up against another enigma, one that faces not into the depths of the dark night, but into the depths of human life. In the midst of all this wonder, how much cruelty and sorrow there is, how bruised and broken all that streaming light can be up close. So acting, responding to this in some way is also essential to awakening. Our awakening belongs not just to us, but to the world. True, on many days, the world's awakening feels so agonizingly slow and inadequate that it rubs us raw, not unlike the way awakening feels inside us sometimes. This is where we can only say that when all is said and done, fortunately, we are here to do it. You know, like uh, in that page before, it talks about this in darkenment and um, uh, that second paragraph, how the light of the dark is what is uh, from which stream the branches of light that make up the universe. And uh, this unknowing and this invisible medium, it's like, um, it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard to put a finger on, you know, I guess, which is the point, but it reminds me of too, like sleep, you know, it's like when I'm asleep, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on, but it's going on. Like it's happening. I'm not in control of it. Okay. Cody's got to go. Bye Cody. Oh yeah. But somebody has to bring me back. I, I, I don't know what has happened. I cannot see the, the page or the participant. Oh, well, click on the icon, the Zoom I, icon. I did. But it, okay. Oh, yeah, I tried. La launch meeting. Okay. No, no, no. The little Zoom icon on the bottom of your screen. Uh, okay. That says Zoom. It's blue with a white word on it. Okay, let me see. Oh, yes, I see it the work oh yes thank you thank you okay i um there is a great uh psychologist and um mystic dr houston and i remember him saying talking about endarkment and he said that his reaction his initial reaction to the awareness of there is no way he can possibly know all the answers to everything in a tiny little human lifetime he said, I found that exhilarating. The horizon was endless and there were so many wonderful avenues to explore. So I thought that was Whoa. yeah, thank kind you. of a neat way of looking at it. Once, once a teacher, I think I was a freshman in college and he, he was like shaking his head. And he said, it must be so terrible to be so stupid, something like that. And I said, no, it's wonderful. I have so much ahead of me to learn, something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> And I wasn't faking that is it a either. weird thing for a teacher to say. He was wonderful. <laughs> I loved him.
Along, along those lines, I'll never forget Deepak Chopra's talk that when he said that the common theory is that of all that exists, what is knowable to humans is 0.1%. And then he put it in perspective. That meant if you got every doctor, it went to every planet we could, you know, reach with a, a spaceship, studied every discipline, blah, 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 that would be 0.1%. And so he said, so what's your conclusion? And I, I thought to myself, I know nothing. Oh, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> you know, so, so it was such a relief not to always, because I always saw that there was this end goal of being, you know, one of the smart people. I'll never be one of the smart people. I only know, even if I learned it all, it's only 0.1%. So that was quite a relief <laughs> for me. Yeah. Which, which in relationship to enlightenment, you have to, you know, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> I, I was under the impression that enlightenment, you know, I would know some answers. Yeah. Yeah. Like you would be. Maybe you only need to know one answer. <laughs> what would that be? The biggie. Oh. <laughs> That's what it's uh, classically known as. Uh, are we reading? Well, we have this to read if we want to finish this chapter. Do we want okay. to do that? Yes. yes. Okay. If you, if you think of the Chinese and Japanese sense of a unified heart mind, enlightenment, sorry, heart mind, enlightenment is roughly related to the illumination of the mind and darkman to the liberation of the heart. The distinction between them isn't hard and fast. There are lots of boundary crossings. Enlightenment is, again roughly, what we come to know, while endarkenment is what we come to realize that we can't know. Insight and mystery, each visits radiance. But again, I'm, I'm uh, uh, questioning the idea of heart-mind that, that's primarily Chinese. Well, yeah. Can you say more? No, it just sort of uh, occurred to me because, uh, well, we-, do you, we are, When you say that it's, it's Chinese, do you mean that it's not originally part of Buddhism? Well, it's, I mean, uh, in many different schools, you, you don't hear about heart-mind at all. But aren't they thought of it in Buddhism as one thing? Uh, it's not well, heart and way, mind. Pardon me? It's not heart and mind. No, no. Well, yeah, because... Uh, in in Sanskrit or Pali, it would definitely not be that wouldn't be the heart, and I don't know how much there would be about mind. I would I would have to go and and see. Uh, but it is a, a a practice, especially in translation uh, from Chinese, the heart mind, and that's where partially. Uh, Japanese uh, took it over. But I didn't see much of heart mind 
from the Japanese side so much. Maybe maybe earlier centuries. But that, you know, that's uh, just my impression. So who read that? Trouty. I did. Okay, so now Cody, we don't have Cody, so Emily. Uh, most of what people think about enlightenment involves solar qualities, sudden breakthrough, insight, clarity, prana, a true dharma eye, kensho, the Japanese word for seeing your true nature, confidence in the truth it reveals. And darkment is the lunar counterpart, not knowing, a broken open heart, grace toward a fallen world, and ease with what is unfathomable. On one hand, the path of enlightening when endarkment is missing can tend toward the cool and the sharp-edged. Manjushri, the embodiment of enlightenment, lives in a crystal palace and carries a sword. On the other hand, endarkening without enlightenment can leave us vulnerable to being overwhelmed by the mystery of the world's sorrow. You know, uh, enlightenment sounds like more fun than endarkenment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like a lot more fun. I feel like, you know, I don't know, my work, there's a lot of sorrow and it's not fun and it can be overwhelming and it's, you know, but uh, this enlightenment, you know, quick, swift insight, clarity, you know, carrying a sword in a crystal palace. Boy, I mean, what am I doing? Where, where, where is that? Yeah, I don't agree. I mean, for me, I would rather do endarkenment. Really? Yeah. Because <laughs> it seems like enlightenment uh, has uh, enlightenment has better PR, Jess. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Maybe we ought to divide up and try a week of each. You know, some of us do one and some do the other. <laughs> See who comes back. <laughs> yes, I'm with you. Yeah. Enlightenment sounds so much better because endarkenment, I find endarkenment heavy. Yeah, that broken open heart and yeah. seeing, like you were saying in the beginning, all of the horribly exactly. bad things that happen, it's like, it's not only overwhelming, it's uh, so stressful. It's just, um, I like the, yeah, the Manjushri. I need to, I need to read his book next. But, you know, um, devil's advocate here, I'd say um, I have more of the basic ingredients for endarkenment. And don't you, don't you think that endarkenment or whatever you pronounce it, is given by karma. I don't. I don't know about that, but um, I mean, I think some people would say that. But um, I will say that I've seen a lot of examples of enlightenment occurring from endarkenment. Hmm. Uh, but I do feel like the sentiment of this paragraph is like one without the other you can't have it they're very they're you know very that thing of light, the light at the end of the tunnel so that's yeah i think it's like a, there has to be this balance because anybody that holds to this endarkenment i mean 
there needs there has to be some kind of a balance like to to be able to stay with the challenges of the world it just seems like you have that enlightenment is needed to just hold it um and to have that insight like i think it's probably yeah like yeah i think i can understand that it's an interesting question about whether it's about karma i you know i see it just as a state of the world that there's there's all the stuff that we don't know that we don't understand we're, we're not comfortable go on and, and i'm not sorry do it. i'm sorry kim just it it seems that she's saying that that both are necessary for balance so that um, things don't become too sharp and cool or just too dragged down and burdensome and desolate. I mean, that there's some bits of each that are necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Malen, to answer your question only from my perspective, only from mine. For me, having grown up in the United States, whether or not it is someone's karma, that feels so much having grown up as a woman and a minority woman and all of these things in a very racist and a polarized country that feels too much like blaming the victim. Mm -hmm. And so I don't even think in terms of, oh, well, it's their karma. Um, I, I just, I just see the suffering and, and that saddens me. And sometimes when I see too much of it in too short a period of time or too deeply, yeah, it feels heavy. So, so I don't know the answer to the question. Some people don't believe in karma, some do. But uh, for me, it's irrelevant. I see a lot of parallels between original sin and kismet and karma, personally. What was the second word you use? Original sin and kismet. kismet. Uh, fate. Oh. It is written. Mm -hmm. Okay, so who's reading now? Uh, I think it's me. Okay. Okay. Uh, so enlightenment and enlightenment deepen and widen each other, temper and heal each other. Each supports the production of the blessings particular to the other. And both are essential to wisdom. Enlightenment and enlightenment occur together so that awakening, the third thing that includes and predates them both, can fall open in us. I feel like we could have written that paragraph after our discussion. And I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago that the, the best realm to be born into is the human realm because it has both of these. Like the heavenly realm doesn't and the hell realm doesn't. But, and this gives us the opportunity for enlightenment that we get, we get it all. Right. 
though it's it can sometimes seem that there's a lot of emphasis on the experiences we have in meditation the koans are most concerned about the quality of our lives there is in us the perfection of the cosmos and also the loose confederation of parts of which that perfection is made what exactly is it that's awakening in us and how do we express it as we spiral through seasons of illumination unknowing and integration how do we spend our days that's really the question i think that, that's great bottom line what do we come to discover that is awakening that awakening is for as the world comes to affect its own how do we walk out to meet it the end what does that mean as the world comes to fetch oh, its own okay <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay if we pull it up again. Maybe the world comes to fetch its own. It like it's some you know big monster that's gonna like. No, not necessarily. I, what does it mean? Um. Well, you live. You exist in a world. You cannot help but be touched by it, right? It's um. You're part of it. So. In the moments when we are deeply experiencing the world, um, I guess how how will we meet those experiences? <laughs> Maybe. I saw it as a mama coming out to fetch her child. Nice. So it's like here's this lovely the world is Mother Earth coming out to gathers, but she brings many things with her, doesn't she? And so how are we going to meet Mother Earth and all that's part of that? And I expand it beyond Mother Earth, the cosmos, and all that's part of it. Other human beings, tragedies, joys. You know, how are we going to meet that Mother creation? Well, this is a little different, but how do we meet it? It depends on the day, Kim. It depends, yeah. No, like, I, how are we going to meet it is kind of planning. But then in the end, it's how we do meet it, which can be different. Yeah. In the moment, yeah. Sheila, this morning after Zazen said that she she's one of the lovely people in our sangha who's in a nursing home or assisted living, whichever. And, and her tradition is the Christian tradition. And she was talking briefly about um, how she had to meet this particular year differently. I don't know for what reason, but she prefaced that statement with, you know, I think of this time as the season of love. And that just, I used to think that way, but I really see every day now in with my practice as the season of love. And so it sounded very foreign to me, although I spent most of my life in the Christian practice. So yeah, I think that's how we, I'm hoping, my um, vision is to try to meet 
things with a season of love every day. Thank you. Yeah, I would say to my parents, you didn't get me anything for Christmas. They, they'd say, every day is Christmas. Aww. Every day. <laughs> okay, well, good to see everyone. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A good night. Thank good you. Night.